Welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. I'm your host, Nick Byers. Uh, episode 7, uh, going to be covering quite a few issues today. we got some debuts. we got a hero debut. we got some villain debuts. Uh, but first, I do want to just put a little note in here that uh, last episode, we were talking about the newspaper strips, the Superman newspaper strips, and being collected into full stories and put into Superman number three and Superman number two. And I asked the question rhetorically, obviously, because I'm sitting in the quote unquote studio uh, talking to no one. Uh, so I, I, I posed the question of how were they printed in the newspaper? And so I reached out to some Superman experts, you know, DC Comics, um, other people. And I reached out to Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers. Uh, they are a formerly a blog and now a Twitter uh, page covering all things Siegel and Schuster and and the the great history behind them and their greatest his, their greatest creation, Superman. And they informed me uh, through my questioning that each strip was about four panels, and then when it was time to put it into the Superman comic book, they would just fill up a standard comic book page with as many panels as could fit so uh something like the comeback of larry trent which was about 2016 pages was actually published over like 24 weekdays sundays were different so uh so that's how that's how it worked and uh so you know reach out to them if if you want to know anything else about uh superman they are the real superman experts i'm not even close uh, I'm just some guy reading comics and telling you about them. So, but let's get into it. Let's set the scene for this week's episode and this week's issues. Uh, we're going to be covering January 1942, uh, February 1940. Uh, and I'm going by release dates here. Obviously, cover dates are a little bit different, but cover dates cover so much time that it's difficult to get uh, history not overlapping and covering stuff that hasn't happened yet. So we're going to go by release dates. So January 4th, Hermann Goring was appointed head of the German war economy. He was uh, the leader of the Gestapo and the Luftwaffe, which is the Air Force, and the Gestapo is obviously the uh, German Nazi police. And he was basically the second most powerful man in, in Nazi Germany. Uh, January 8th, the British government introduced rationing for butter, bacon, ham, and sugar. These were obviously used, uh, more importantly, for the men fighting over in mainland Europe. So uh, at, to do their part, the, the regular people back in Britain uh, were asked to not use as much. January 12th, 1940, NBC initiated its first network television programming. Uh, a play called Meet the Wife was broadcast to a station in Schenectady, New York. January 23rd, Oliver Stanley announced in the House of Commons that kilts would not be issued to members of Scottish regiments except to pipers and drummers for reasons connected to the possible use of poison gas by the enemy. You gotta protect your bits. Can't be, can't be wearing kilts and getting poison gas up in your bits, all right? You gotta be wearing pants. I'm sorry. This is war. February 1st, 1940, Japan passed a massive budget devoting unprecedented sums to weapons and training. This is obviously ramping up to when Japan joins the war effort on the side of the Axis powers, Nazi Germany and uh, fascist Italy. February 6th, Tom Brokaw, television journalist and author, 
uh, was born in Webster, South Dakota. I include that mostly because, well, Tom Brokaw is really well known. He was he was on television for decades. But also, he's from Webster, South, South Dakota, which is not very far from where I grew up in the eastern half of South Dakota. And finally, February 8th, the adventure film Swiss Family Robinson, the first feature-length adaption of the Johann David Weiss novel of the same name, was released. Uh, so, yeah, so that's what's, that's what's going on as these issues are being released and read. Uh, so let's get into the issues. This week we'll be covering Detective Comics number 36, Adventure Comics number 47, Flash Comics number 3, Action Comics number 22, More Fun Comics number 53, Detective Comics number 37, and Adventure Comics number 48. A big episode just because I think the final, the final issue is important uh, or exciting. Um, it's, it's a debut, but I'm going to leave it for a surprise for the end. Unless you read the episode description, then, of course, obviously, you already know what it is, but them's, them's the breaks. So, first up, Detective Comics number 36, released January 4th, 1940, with a cover date of February 1940. We have one debut in this Batman-only issue, uh, Hugo Strange, Professor Hugo Strange. And I don't know a lot about uh, Hugo Strange. I know he's a character. I know he's a villain of, of Batman, more of the cerebral type. Whereas someone like Bane is the physical type of enemy, but uh, I remember him probably from the most from Arkham City, the video game, because he was a big, like pretty much the main antagonist of that one. The reason the whole game happens, um, and I remember him, you know, bald head, because villains always have to be bald, I guess, in this time, uh, you know, kind of chin strap beard, so no no mustache, and, and those little tiny sort of John Lennon size glasses and I will say he looks a lot like that in this issue so that is very very interesting uh, this issue this Batman story written by Bill Finger and Bob Kane the OG duo so we open on Batman he is on his way homeward from a night of patrol and he sees down on the street a man uh, jumping out of a speeding car and running away he finds this suspicious Batman does and jumps down to the street, but as he does, the man is shot from someone in the car. Batman goes to investigate the man, and the man, uh, in in his dying breath, says, Fog, fog, strange, fog, strange, and dies there. Batman searches his pockets and finds a notebook, uh, and as he's searching his pockets, uh, the police come, and they think Batman has killed him. Uh, which is not not a far-off thing to think. Batman is dressed like a weirdo in the middle of the night, and there's a dead body. Uh, he escapes the police, and Bruce Wayne is back at his uh, mansion uh, thinking over this strange occurrence. He's thinking, like, it's fog, strange, a strange fog. You know, he's kind of moving the, the words around in his head, and he's thinking that like the inflection was different on the word strange, almost like it was a name. And he, and he, you know, snaps his finger and he's like, I got it. Professor Hugo Strange. Something to do with fog and Professor Hugo Strange. And he describes Professor Hugo Strange as the most dangerous man in the world, scientist, philosopher, and a criminal genius. Little is known of him, yet this man is undoubtedly the greatest organizer of crime in the world. Uh, he also looks through the book the notebook that uh, the, the dying man had in his pockets, and he discovers that this man uh, was an FBI agent, a G-man, as they call him. 
Uh, and in the book was a list of, of banks and other places. Uh, nothing about these other places, just a list. So Batman, of course, is, is going to you know figure out what the whole plot is. But we jump to uh, a man sitting in a dimly lit room. It's lit purely by a fireplace, and he's sitting in the chair. And we see the familiar visage of, of Hugo Strange, bald, you know, round glasses, chin strap beard. Uh, and he's sitting there, and his associate comes and explains what happened with the FBI agent and uh, Batman and all this kind of stuff. And Hugo Strange says that he should have shot Batman because Batman is the only person who can deduce the exact nature of his plans and foil them, obviously. But they're still going to proceed with their plan when the fog rolls in tomorrow night and they strike. And then he laughs like he is deranged. Uh, He acts very deranged in this issue. And I don't know if, as I'm not a Hugo Strange expert, I don't know if that's normal for him, but it's, it's interesting. So this thick fog comes into to town, and the police comment, like, it's so thick I can barely see if anyone's doing a crime, and it's so, like, hot that, you know, I can't outrun them because I'm, you know, sweating so much, or I can't catch them because I'm it's too hot. I get overheated. And they run into that problem. Multiple banks are robbed, and the police commissioner, Gordon, is, is angry at them for not catching them, and they say, what can we do? We can't see them. We can't catch them. All this kind of stuff. And Bruce Wayne, meanwhile, is sitting at home. He's doing his Sherlock Holmesian thing of smoking a pipe, listening to the radio, and thinking about the case. And he hears about the Case National Bank being robbed for $250,000 and the Bond Exchange Bank for $100,000. And he thinks back that those two are the first names on the list in the, the FBI agent's notebook. Uh, so he is going to go to the third place on the notebook notebook list. And that place is Sterling Silver Co. And we cut to Sterling Silver Co. And there is a man outside of a door next to a moving van. And he's knocking on the door saying he's a detective and that they need to open up. A- an old watchman uh, opens up the door and lets in these guys. But they pull guns on him, saying this is a stick-up and that he's being robbed. The watchman takes off his cl- his coat and his hat and is revealed to be Batman the whole time. And then Batman does a very bowling-themed, like all of his quips are bowling-themed. Uh, he, de- he defeats all of these six guys. He says, this, boys, is what's what they call a perfect strike on any bowling alley. And he's just, like, tackling all six of these dudes. He then, you know, gets the police to come and arrest all these guys. And Hugo Strange sees it in the newspaper the next day and is angry and is furious. Uh, and he's going to trap Batman. And he says, I'll crush him as readily as I crush this glass. And he just crushes like a champagne glass or a wine glass in his, in his fist. So Batman is heading to the fourth place on the list, the Wolf Brothers Fur Company, which is like very spot on name, just like the Sterling Silver Company. He steps inside, and the doors close, and lights are on full blast as he walks in. And inside are just a big old group of criminal henchmen. He, you know, jumps over them, grabs onto a rope, swings up, does some acrobatic stuff to elude them, swings around a beam to kick them, very uh, Batman style, kind of like the paint cans in Home Alone as they're coming up the stairs. And he's just like, Batman is just such a beast. He is just taking on these dudes and just knocking them down. 
he he lifts one up at one point and says, "You boys are better workout than the gym." He's doing overhead press of one. That's that's pretty impressive. And he throws one into a bunch of the other ones, but one of them eventually gets the upper hand and knocks him out with a blackjack. Which and what if you don't know what a blackjack is? It's a small sort of stick. It's about maybe like the length of your hand, maybe a little bit longer. And it's covered in leather, and it's used for basically knocking people out. Police have them, uh, or at least used to have them. Uh, they're used for you know non-lethal incapacitation. Uh, so they take him to Hugo Strange's warehouse. There he is bound to the wall, and Hugo Strange has a large whip and is going to lash him uh, repeatedly. Uh, as he lashes him the first time, Batman you know, flexes his massive steel muscles and breaks out of his binds as he's done previously, pulls out the old standby knockout gas, sleeping gas, and gas is the henchman, but Strange, being a genius, covers his mouth and nose with a handkerchief, and him and Batman begin to fight. Strange has the upper hand at, at one point and is choking Batman. He gets a secure stranglehold on him. Batman, using jujitsu, flips him over and uh, knocks him out and ties him up and then explores some of this warehouse and finds basically a laboratory. And inside that laboratory is a man tied up. Uh, and he is a missing electrical engineer named Henry, Henry Jenkins, who Hugo Strange captured uh, because of his work on concentrated lightning, otherwise known as hot lightning. Lewis found out that um, hot lightning can cause condensed steam in the air, uh, like an unnatural fog. So Strange had him build this machine that basically created hot lightning, which then created steam, and that's why it was so hot, and that's why it was so thick, because it was steam, not fog. Uh, even though fog is technically, you know, it's water vapor, but a different kind of water vapor. They turn off the machine or destroy it, and uh, the, the steam fog dissipates. And we hear on the radio that, thanks to the Batman, the Hugo Strange has been ki- kidnapped. Hugo Strange has been captured and sent to jail for a long time to come. We then see in the final panel at the state penitentiary that Hugo Strange vows to escape, and he's going to... Uh, revenge himself upon the Batman and obviously we know in the future that he does do that because he is a recurring villain for Batman part of his rogues gallery a more minor one now in in the present but uh, probably could be considered and I think should be considered his first like real long-term rogue other than maybe Dr. Death and the monk but I don't know how often Dr. Death or the monk reappear in the future I do know Hugo Strange does though so that's interesting that's interesting but yeah, that is that is Detective Comics number thirty six. I think a really really good Batman story. This one like it 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 had all the hallmarks of a Batman story that you like: detectiving, fights, all that kind of stuff. Uh, very good, very good. I, I give it a I give it an A plus if I gave out ratings for these things. Moving on, we are headed to Adventure Comics number forty seven, released January 9th, nineteen forty, with a cover date of February nineteen forty. Just a Sandman in this one. Uh, we do have a debut of a, a semi-minor recurring character of, of Diane uh, Belmont. She is a sort of a partner in, in quote-unquote crime and uh, a, a minor love interest for Wesley Dodds' Sandman. And she's around for a few issues but uh, doesn't stick around for any lasting amount of time, but I thought I would 
cover her because she's very pivotal to this week's issue. So we see uh, on the, uh, the the top of the Sandman title page that there's been a murder of Anson Port, apparently an important guy who's been murdered, and the district attorney is unable to figure out who the murderer is. We then cut to Sandman, and he's sitting atop a skylight above a man uh, sitting at a desk, and he sprinkles sand down on him. And the man at the desk says, "Sand? Where could it? Where could it? Where could it all fall from?" And then he says, "Sand." The Sandman. Uh, and the Sandman, as we know, uh, portrays himself as a criminal, even though he is doing uh, justice. So the Sandman opens the skylight and says, uh, I want to talk to you about the murder of Anson Port, but I want your word that you will have no hostile moves against me. And uh, the DA agrees. And the, the Sandman says that Anson Port was his friend and that uh, he knows that the DA lost the bullet that killed him. And the Sandman pulls a bullet out and says, I have the bullet. Here it is. I don't know where he got it. It's not explained. It doesn't matter. And so the DA is going to have the bullet tested. He says it looks like it's from a Corson repeater um, and that he'll have it tested and they'll use it to find the murderer, I guess. So the Sandman is going to head home for some sleep, for some good sleep. He's going to have the Sandman visit him, you know, instead of the other way around. Uh, and he puts his Sandman gear into a special safe, an uncrackable safe, in, behind a painting. And as he's, you know, trying to sleep, he hears someone creeping into his house. And he tackles them and punches them in the face. He turns on the lights, and he finds out it's a woman. And so then he feels bad for punching a woman, which you so- should. But then again, they were breaking into your house. So, you know, equality of home defense, I guess. She wakes up and she says, oh, you're Wesley Dodds. Uh, Are you going to turn me over to the police? And he says, not yet, and asks her why she's breaking into his safe, Uh, which is what you should always do with criminals. Don't call the police. Just ask them their side of the story. They'll definitely tell you the truth. Uh, she She tells Wesley that her name is Diane, and she was sent here by Black Trent, to open to, to bust into his safe and steal the stuff inside. She's the daughter of, of Slick Deacon, or she was brought up by Slick Deacon. She doesn't know who her parents are, and if she opened this safe and got what was inside, Black Trent was going to tell her who her real father was. Uh, Wesley allows her to open it uh, to see if she's as good as she says she is. She opens it easily. Uh, he tells her not to look into it, but she does, and she sees that he's the Sandman. And so then she gets uh, the Sandman to help her find out what Black Trent knows about her birth father because she doesn't like doing crime, even though she's very good at it. So they they partner up to to do this. uh, And as a part of this, uh, they're going to try and figure out who killed Anson Port because clearly the DA can't do it. So on their way to wherever, they stop by the police crime lab and uh, the the bullet analysis should be done by now and Sandman goes in there he sees the DA he asks for the report the DA says no Uh, Sandman gasses the DA and then has Diane crack the safe that it's in uh, to to get it but before she can uh, two thugs come in to to the to the room and are going to you know get the Sandman he jumps out of the window like immediately leaving Diane there by herself which Sandman's normally a solo operator. He doesn't work with a partner very often. So 
inside, we learn that the man who came in, one of the men, is called Trigger Hunt. And he wants the report on that bullet. And so he wants Diane to open the safe. And she does. And he reads it. And he is he is kind of ashen-faced about it. Uh, the Sandman comes back into the room and gasses everybody, including um, Diane. But as he is, before he can gas everybody, he gets shot in the shoulder by uh, one of Trigger Hunt's men. And he, through great pains, grabs Diane, puts her into the Sandman mobile, and begins driving away. But his, he's losing a lot of blood. So he passes out, and they drive off of uh, you know the side of the road, and they hit a tree on a farmer's land. They wake up the next day and they use the old-timey excuse that they used last issue that they were coming home from a masquerade ball. And the farmer and his wife patch them up and you know give them a place to stay. And they are talking the next day back at the Dodds house. And they read the ballistics report and it proves that Trigger Hunt was the guy who committed the murder of Anson Port. But they know he's just a middleman, so they got to find out who was pulling the strings and they think it's Black Trent. And I will say, Trent is not black. That is uh, just a nickname. His full, his full criminal title is Black Bill Trent. Don't know why that's his his moniker, but uh, that is it. I just don't want to get it twisted. So they drive to, to Trent's house, and Sandman's going to sneak in and get you know any evidence of really anything. Uh, Diane's father, the murders, all this kind of stuff. Stuff to get, you know, to be able to get the the crime attributed to Trent. So Sandman does sneak in. He, he sneaks in as uh, Trent is speaking with his lawyer, knocks them both out, and rifles through Trent's desk and finds a few interesting pieces of information. Uh, then they, they head off, Diane and, and Sandman. They stop at the city jail uh, to get tr- uh, Trigger Hunt because he was obviously caught in the police station, breaking and entering to the police station, so he's obviously in jail. They get him and they bring him to the DA's house. Sandman shows the DA a list of names that Black Bill Trent had Trigger Hunt uh, take out, assassinate, and also a list of all of the various rackets that uh, Trent was pulling, uh, which is nice of criminals to keep a list of all of the, the crimes they do. It really makes it easy. Uh, the police bust in because the DA knew that Sandman would be back eventually. Diane pulls a gun on the DA uh, so that the police don't shoot her and Sandman. And the Sandman then asks a question. He asks the DA if he remembers the Dalton house in Chicago. And the DA says, that's where I was married and where my enemies shot my wife and killed my baby daughter. It's a very tragic backstory for the DA. The Sandman asks to speak in private because he's got some information to prove that his daughter is still alive. He introduces the DA to Diane, Slick Deacon's protege, sort of uh, adopted daughter. And he tells the DA that Slick Deacon kept a diary. And what, what happened the day that the DA's wife and daughter were killed was that Slick Deacon couldn't go through with it. Uh, his wife was killed, of course, but his... Baby girl, Slick Deacon took her and and raised her. So Diane is the DA's daughter, Diane Belmont, because it's it's District Attorney Belmont. And they they embrace and 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 everything's happy. The DA says that Sandman's welcome anytime, and Diane gives Sandman a kiss, and Di- and the Sandman heads off 
to return to his Wesley Dodds house, and that's the end of the issue. I think it's a pretty it's a pretty good issue. There's some just like with the Batman story, there's some detectiving, there's some gas gun shooting, some sand sprinkling, all the things you need in the Sandman story. So you know what? Another A plus if I gave ratings, which I don't. These don't mean anything. There's no there's no criteria for these ratings. I'm just pulling them out of thin air. And speaking of thin air, let's move on to our next issue, which involves a hero that can disappear into thin air. Uh, Flash Comics number three, released January 15th, 1940, with a cover date of March 1940. No debuts in this one, just the, the old three mainstays, Flash, Hawkman, and Johnny Thunder. Let's start in with The Flash, uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and Everett E. Hibbard, which I believe is a different artist. Yes, it is a different artist from the first two, uh, who, uh, I believe it was Lampert, who drew the first two stories of The Flash, but now it is Everett E. Hibbard, and from what I can tell, it's it's him for a while, or at least for a few issues. Uh, so this Flash story doesn't have a title in the actual comic. Uh, I, I always wonder how they decide if they're going to give it a title, because like, Zatara has a title in every single one. Uh, I believe Hawkman has a title. Sandman has a title a lot of the times, too, but like Superman doesn't often have a title. Batman doesn't often have a title, and The Flash doesn't have a title. So, I guess it's teach their own, right? But, let's start in. So, this Flash story begins with Jay Garrick eating breakfast at his apartment, and he's reading the newspaper like old-timey people do, and in there, on the front page, he sees uh, an article about former Major Williams, and we know Williams, Joan Williams. This is her father, who we met in the first issue of Flash Comics. He has been arrested and accused of being a spy for a foreign country. Uh, as Jay is reading this, Joan bursts in and says, Oh, my father, you have to help. It's a frame-up. He didn't do anything. It's it's all about this new invention. He made a neutronic bombardment of uranium, which is a, a energy source, apparently. So Jay Garrick turns into The Flash, uh, and it has a caption on this panel that says, Jay Garrick, widely known and feared as The Flash. That's not a good superhero persona. If you're widely known, if everyone knows who you are, what's the point? Why even be the Flash? Just be Jay Carrick, you know? Oh, goodness. So he runs off to the town cackle, which is what the newspaper is called. Uh, and he runs in. This issue has a ton of, like, Flash running so fast that people are so confused because he's moving so fast he's invisible kind of stuff. It's like every single page there's at least two examples. So he's ransacking the building, and he, he overhears uh, the editor talking to a reporter to go make sure that Williams is found guilty. So that's weird, right? And Flash has got to figure out how to stop him from doing that. So he runs after the cab that the reporter got into and, of course, gets into the cab because he's running so fast he can just open the door and get in. Takes all the clothes of the reporter off. Uh, well, not all of his clothes. It says all of his clothes, but, but really he just takes off his pants, his shoes, his jacket... So he's wearing his underwear and his button-down shirt and his tie. Flash loves to just take people's clothes off, which I don't think is cool. Flash, like, how would you like it if someone just took all your clothes off? Maybe you'd like it. I don't know, Flash. As he runs away from the cab with the reporter in tow, uh, the cab driver says, I don't believe it. A man can't run 60 miles an hour. And am I going nuts? I'm assuming he was running way faster than 60 miles an hour because often... The Flash runs so fast or moves so fast that he is unseen. So I think it's maybe faster than 60 miles an hour, cabbie. 
So the Flash runs the reporter up to the top of the Empire State Building because they are in New York. And he is going to leave him up there until he agrees to talk about why the town cackle is involved with framing Major Williams. The Flash then runs to the county jail where Williams is being held, and he does some shenanigans um, with running really fast and spinning around to be invisible to get the keys from the jailers and hides inside Williams' cell until they go away. And then he talks to uh, Major Williams, and Major Williams tells him all about this neutronic bombardment of uranium that he's been inventing. Uh, It causes tremendous energy for the war machinery because I obviously... The U.S. isn't involved in the war, but you never know. And and a good army is a good deterrent from people trying to get you involved with something you don't want to get involved in. Even though it doesn't work, obviously we know. So he thinks that the cackle, or whoever runs it, wants the secret so they can turn it over to a foreign government. And they're they're framing him in order to hide their tracks, obviously. So the Flash agrees to find out, you know, the cackle's plans and try to stop them. So first, he stops by Major Williams's home uh, to check on the plans and make sure they're still safe. They are not. The safe has been broken into. The plans are gone. And so the Flash runs back to the reporter to see if he is, um, I guess, cooked long enough, even though it's freezing up there. So he's freezing uh, and, and see if he's in a talkative mood. And he is. He is in a talkative mood. So he, he promises to tell the Flash everything he knows about the cackle and its involvement with this frame-up. The Flash then brags to the reporter about, like, how fast he is. Like, the reporter says, you were only gone a minute or two, but I'm so cold, I'm half frozen. And then the Flash is in a braggy mood, so he says, in that minute or two, I interviewed Williams at the county jail and stopped in, stepped into his bedroom at home on my way here. It's like, okay, Flash, we get it, you're really fast. Like, that's your whole thing, braggart. What a braggart. So he gets the reporter to talk, and he says that the the cackle was hired, that the reporter was hired by the cackle to find out about Williams's plans for the neutronic bombardment, and the cackle was going to frame him, claiming he offered to sell the plans, which would, you know, put suspicion on him rather than them, and in the meanwhile, they were going to steal the plans, and the publisher, Burstoff, was going to get a fortune selling them to a foreign government himself. So now the... Uh, the Flash has enlisted this reporter as a sort of sidekick for this issue. He gets his clothes back. Good for him. He's not going to freeze. And also, he's decent, so he can walk around outside like a normal person. And then the Flash picks him up, and they begin their do their their final steps in, in thwarting this plan. And this is the first instance we see of the Flash running so fast that normal people can't really breathe or see while he's moving that fast because the reporter has difficulty breathing. Uh, while he's running and he has to take a big breath before they go anywhere because it's hard to grab the oxygen. The Flash's body has obviously been adapted to breathing and doing everything at high speed, so he has no problem. Uh, So the first thing they're going to do is go to the town cackle and figure out where the plans are and where Burstoff is so that they can go get him. The Flash dresses up as a what's known as a cub reporter, which must be like a junior reporter, someone who's not really in the industry yet, and he grabs a dictaphone from home and uh, sets it to record so that he can record all the talkings. So they talk to the city editor uh, of the town cackle while being recorded, and he says that Burstoff has the plans, that they stole them after Williams was taken to jail, so his house is empty, and now they can sell them and clean up a plenty. Uh, so Flash and the reporter, Eddins, uh, they leave, 
and they run out to uh, the Burstoff residence, which is in the countryside because he is a you know rich publisher of the newspaper, so he can afford to do that. They run inside and meet with Burstoff, and Flash, being a, you know a smart guy, he uses Burstoff's need to stroke his own ego. He says that it was marvelous work of getting those blueprints and and framing Williams. How did you do it? And he explains, you know, that they framed Williams and, and stole his invention, which we already knew, but he's now got it on record. So the Flash now has a scheme to get the blueprints back. He runs so fast that a, you know, a gust of wind blows them out the window. He runs out, hides them, and runs back in before Burstoff even notices that he has moved. So after the Flash gets the blueprints, he runs to Army headquarters and drops them off with the commanding officer of the, the headquarters. It, he doesn't get a name. He's an old friend of Major Williams. And he explains to this commanding officer that these pl- here are the plans. Williams didn't sell them to anybody. They were stolen by Burstoff and the, the town Cackle. The, there's also then this panel where the Flash, who is dressed like Jay Garrick right now, not the Flash, he looks straight into the quote-unquote camera and and explains that he can basically get in anywhere, which is uh, psychotic. And we're lucky that the Flash is on our side, because if not, he could get in anywhere, which, I mean, obviously is what happens with the reverse Flash and Professor Zoom and all that kind of stuff, all the n- numerous speedsters we have now in the present. So they are uh, going to send army police to arrest Burstoff and uh, the other... Uh, compatriots at the town cackle. Jay Garrick f- runs back to Burstoff residence, and he did it all in like a minute or two. And the excuse he made to leave was that he was going to go search outside for the plans. Uh, so he was gone for a few minutes, uh, but in that time he ran to the army headquarters and ran back. Burstoff then gets a phone call saying that Williams has been released, because obviously his old buddy at the army has the evidence so he can get him out of jail, and that the Flash is a man named Garrick and working to help Williams. And so Burstoff is going to leave the country. Jay Garrick never told him his name. He's just some, you know, minor reporter that Eddins, his reporter friend, brought with him. So he doesn't think that he's the Flash yet. Burstoff gets into his car and begins to drive away, but Jay Garrick runs after him and says that he needs to confess about the crimes against Major Williams. Burstoff then realizes that he is the Flash because they're driving at 70 miles an hour. The Flash then gets into Burstoff's car while it's moving and wants him to sign a confession, implicating his entire gang. The Flash then says he has to use some strong medicine to get him to talk. So he gets out and grabs Burstoff by the, the feet and spins him around fast enough so that we can't even see them in the panel which I think might kill him. All that blood rushing, like the centrifugal force of, of all the blood rushing to the plane, I think I think he would die. So that's not good. Hopefully hopefully he's okay so he can face justice. He says he'll confess. Uh, Joan and Major Williams show up, and Joan says she's going to give Jay a big kiss. And J- Jay says, well, in that case, let's keep it a secret. So they kiss while he's spinning so fast that he, that no one can see them. And that's the end. A pretty, a pretty good Flash story. Uh, lots of super speed. This this series of Flash comics, they have a great sense of motion. Uh, there's lots of whooshing and all this kind of stuff that I really enjoy, and it really brings it a sense of movement that I think a lot of other comics of this period don't really have. 
And I'm sure I've said that before, and I'm sure you, you know you're tired of hearing it, but it's just true. There's just a great sense of movement in these. Let's fly on over to the next story. Pardon my pun, Hawkman. Uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Dennis Neville. So we open up on the Hawkman, coming home from a night of patrol, uh, like like just like Batman. And he sees walking through the woods um, an old college friend. Uh, but he's walking like a zombie. Uh, Carter's worried about him, brings him home, tucks him into bed, uh, and, and, and heads home. The next day, though, it turns out his friend is dead. His friend, whose name is Dick, he died, which is weird because the Hawkman saw him home and he was safe and sound in his bed, all tucked in tight with, with uh, warm milk. Carter goes to the funeral and pays his respects and meets uh, a friend of Dick's, Una Cathay. And Dick and her were working on a theory uh, when, when he died um, that it's possible to live forever. They were trying to discover eternal life. And Una, while she's explaining that humans could live forever, one, one, she says that one doing that could master the world. So this puts Carter on edge. And as he's walking home, he doesn't like what's, you know, what's going on. She seems like she's got an evil air about her. So he becomes Hawkman. Uh, and later that day goes to check on Dick's body because he's worried about it because, you know, she's working on eternal life, so maybe it's something to do with dead bodies. And Dick's body is gone. He then gets the address of Una Cathay from Dick's father, 3030 Eldred Road, to not to dox her or anything, but she's probably dead by now and is fictional. And we see her at 3030 Eldred Road with a big old fishbowl and inside that fishbowl is Dick. Dick Blendon is his name, his full name. And they're going to revive him. So she pours a, a special chemical in there and has her henchman, Rolf, grab him out uh, at, after he wakes up and put him into this special jar. And it's very reminiscent of the um, the heads, the head, the disembodied heads in jars in Futurama, except for these are big, like, large human-sized bottles that the body sits in, and there's a you know a mixture of chemicals in there. And the head sits out uh, up above. So it's very similar, but different. Same, same, but different. Una wants uh, Dick to tell her his, the secret that he found out about eternal life, or if not, come up with a way to do it with the other three gentlemen who are being, or four gentlemen, being stored in these bottles alongside of him, experts in physics, chemistry, and biology. We then see uh, Una talking to another gentleman, who we learn later is Count Torgoth, a Russian scientist, and her associate. And they're talking, and she tells him that she knows that Dick Blendon will eventually talk, and that he knows the secret because he said so before he died. The Hawkman comes in, and hears them talking, and he says, what is this secret of eternal life? And he pretends to be, like, with them, like, wants, pretends to be on their side, and he says, I'm anxious to learn that secret, too. Perhaps we could work together on it. So he's gotten himself into the good graces of, of Una Cathay and Count Torgoth, and Count Torgoth explains what these big bottles are. Uh, there's a chemical in these big bottles that, when mixed with a special solution keeps the body alive by stimulating the heart in normal functions. 
uh, without the chemicals uh, and the special ingredient, they'll die. But otherwise, it'll keep the brain and tongue alive forever. The two most important parts of the human body, the brain and tongue. You heard it here first, Flash Comics number three. Uh, Hawkman says, so you've discovered eternal life then? And she says, no, because I don't want to be spending the rest of my days in these bottles. But Blendon, Dick Blendon, possesses a secret, and but they just need to force it out of him. And Hawkman says that he'll have to do that. But Hawkman says that he has to get going for whatever reason. He doesn't really say. Um, but as he does, Una ties a hair around his wrist without him noticing, which is, I, I don't know how, because tying takes a lot of hand movement. But she does it. She's a great sleight of hand. So he's going to come back later when when they've got the secret out of Dick Blendon. So the reason that Una tied a hair around him is she's going to practice some voodoo incantations later and burn him to death. And she needed that hair tied around him to do it. So Hawkman flies back to get some weapons and stuff to capture Una and, and Count Torgoff. And there he meets uh, Shiera his fiance, and she says that he stood her up. She was there, He was supposed to meet her, but he didn't. Where has he been? And he explains the situation. And as he's reaching for some throwing daggers, Shiara sees the hair tied around his wrist and uh, quickly rips it off, and as she does, it bursts into flames because at that moment, Una was, you know, doing the incantations to burn Hawkman alive. Then she uh, goes to Dick Blendon and says... Tell me, tell me the secret or I won't give you this special mixture to keep you alive. And he says, no, no, never. And she says, fine, you'll just suffer terrible torture once it wears off. The Hawkman returns and sneaks into the laboratory and frees Dick and the other scientists. He reveals himself to be Carter Hall to his friend Dick. And it's revealed that none of these men were actually dead uh, which they were they were just drugged into a coma-like state, and then their bodies were stolen by Una. But Dick says that he can come up with a antidote for the chemicals in their system that are counteracted by these big bottles at Carter's lab. So he piles all of these scientists into a cab outside of the laboratory, I guess without Una or Count Torgoff seeing, and they are, they are free from danger. Hawkman then uh, destroys all of the bottles and hides for, for when Una and Torgoff come in, and see that, and he jumps out and says, your magic didn't work, idiot. And he throws a knife at Count Torgoff, who's about to shoot him with a gun, pins his hand to the wall, there's blood, gruesome. And then he chases Una, and she goes behind a uh, door uh, and locks it, and he can't bust through. And he is going to fly out of the top of the house and, and see where she escapes to so she can he can capture her but Torgoff comes up behind him and does a dumb thing that dumb people do and announces it he's gonna stab he's gonna stab Hawkman in the back and before he does it he says I'll get you my fine feathered friend which like don't announce it just stab him uh but Hawkman flies out Torgoff falls to his death and uh Hawkman chases after Una who gets into a car and is speeding away Hawkman throws his last dagger and punctures the tire. She crashes into a tree. She has broken her neck, uh, so she is dead as well. And Hawkman goes home and, and is congratulated by all of the freed scientists. And they say that he'll keep his Hawkman identity safe. So that's great. That's that's good news for everybody. Uh, well, I guess for Hawkman. And for those guys, because they're now not going to die from you know poisoning, I guess. Um, and a, a 
an okay story. I I wish that Hawkman, just like Zatara, would deal with more mystical-based foes, and maybe he will later, uh, just because he is, at this point, a mystical-based hero. It's not until after, or it's not until the Silver Age, or maybe even after Crisis on Infinite Earths, that he becomes an alien. So... I would. I think he should battle more mystic people rather than science people, but it is what it is. Moving on. The final story of this issue is Johnny Thunderbolt, of course. Johnny Thunder, uh, our little comedic turn before Johnny eventually joins the Justice Society of America and uh, is an inaugural member, basically. But as we, when we left him, he had just beaten the Suicide Kid, uh, a known heavyweight, and he now has to battle the champ, Gunpowder Gantz, which is quite the name. Uh, and Johnny's doing all this training, and he hates it. He doesn't like. He doesn't actually like fighting, and he only got into this on, on accident, as we know. Uh, we see Gunpowder Gant Glance, and he is a, he's a monster. He he loves training. He loves fighting, and he's talking with his manager, and getting a massage after training. And his manager has the idea that all scumbag managers eventually have that he should, since he's so favored in this fight, he should take a dive so they can bet on Johnny Thunder and make about $200,000. No, sorry, I misread that number, $800,000, which is a lot of money in 1940, but why is it always this? Why is it when boxing ever comes up, it's like, you got to take a dive. No, why? Just, just fight and just have the best fighter win. I don't know. It's lame. It's a lame plot point. We then cut to Johnny Thunder. He is dressed up in his red bow tie, uh, and he is walking with Daisy Darling, his his newfound sweetheart from last uh, last issue and last episode. And she says that her father's very grateful to him, and he, she says he won a lot of money on Johnny's fight. Oh, and also that he saved his daughter's life, <laughs> which the Darlings are funny people. Uh Daisy says some things later in this issue that are very funny. And they're walking, you know, by the the riverside, and a man with a gun tries to rob them. And Johnny has said the magic word, say you. He says uh, to Daisy before they get stuck up, he says, Do you say, what do you say you and I go slop up a chocolate malt somewhere? Which, wow, slop up. Let's slop it up. Uh, Sloppy steaks at Trefani's. Uh, the, um, they're, they're stuck up and this is weird because I think that this phrase that, that Johnny says should, should activate the Thunderbolt, but it doesn't. He says, can't you wait till tomorrow? Most of my money's in the 13th National Bank. So I think that the, the, the robber should say, okay, I'll be back tomorrow to rob you. And that would have been a very funny thing to happen, but it doesn't happen. So the robber says that you'll have to write a check if you don't have any money, which sure, yep, that check will go through. And Johnny, Johnny gets a pen from the, from the mugger, uh, and he breaks it, and it kind of shoots into the, the robber's face. And Darling and uh, Johnny run for it, and they, they duck behind a, a conveniently placed waste barrel. Oh, it's not, it's not like nuclear waste or chemical waste. It's like a trash can. Sorry. That's, it just says waste on it, and that just makes me think nuclear waste for whatever reason i guess it's the barrel shape it looks like one of those chemical barrels and the mugger is chasing after them and shooting at him 
at them, which is like, come on, dude. That's not how you mug people. They, you can't mug people that are dead if they don't have anything. How's he going to write you a check if he's dead? But Johnny says, go on now, beat it, scram. Go on back where you came from. And you think it's going to affect the guy, but it doesn't. It affects the bullets. And the bullets turn around and shoot the gun out of the guy's hands. And Daisy's so happy. She says, oh, Johnny, once more, you've saved my life. Let us get married before I change my mind. Which is like, wow, that's just such a... A ringing endorsement of, of her love for you, Johnny. You've also known her for all of, I don't know, what, a week? Seems a bit fast. Seems a bit fast to be getting married, even in 1940. But Daisy doesn't want to get married to a fighter. It's a, it's a low profession. And we know two things about Daisy. She only cares about two things about Johnny. His name and his occupation. Because those are the first two things she had to know when she met him. Johnny says that he has to fight because he, he signed a paper. <laughs> And uh, Daisy has the idea about, well, what if you just lose the fight? Then you won't have to fight anymore. And Johnny says, that's a great idea. So now we've got a match where they're both trying to take a dive. So it should uh, be interesting. So the fight starts. It's the day of the fight, and the fight starts. Round one. Ding, ding. And Johnny and Gunpowder Glance, they, they come in swinging, and they both miss, and they both fall down on their butts. And it's very funny. Uh, and Johnny had previously said, say you, when he was talking to Daisy. So his Thunderbolt powers are activated. I forgot to mention that. I am sorry. And he says, he says to Gunpowder Glance after they've, you know, both gotten up from missing. He says, go on. Let's see you knock me for a loop. Hit me. I dare you. So he hits Johnny, but he hits him into the ropes of the ring. And he like rubber bands back and collides with Gunpowder Glance and knocks him out. And Daisy's all sad, and she says, oh, Johnny, you didn't do what you said. And Johnny's like, well, I only hit him once. That doesn't count. And Gunpowder Glance is knocked out, and Daisy says, now we can't get married as previously scheduled. Boo-hoo. She just has the weirdest things to say. Oh, goodness. Uh, so so Johnny's the new uh, world champ, uh, new heavyweight champion, uh, and that's the issue of Johnny Thunder. Some good comedic stuff in there. Daisy Darling is a real character. Uh, but that is that is Flash Comics number three. And let's move on to the next issue. Action Comics number 22. Released January 23rd, 1940, with a cover date of March 1940. Superman, Zatara, let's go. Superman story, written and drawn by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And it opens up on Superman. Nope, sorry. It opens up on the armed battalions of Turan unexpectedly swooping down upon a lesser nation, Galonia. They're made-up countries, just in case you don't know your European geography. Obviously, they are an equivalency to the war that's currently raging in Europe at the moment that this issue is released. So that's poignant. George Taylor sends Lois and Clark to Luxor, which is a city in one of the countries, uh, to act as war correspondents, even though, like an issue ago, in Superman number three, he benched Lois to the Lovelorn desk, but then again, that was a newspaper clipping, so it probably happened way earlier. Just thought I should bring it up. Lois and Clark board a, a steamer, the Baranta, to uh, head over to Europe, and Lois hates the fact that Clark is is sent with her on her adventure. They see an exotic woman, don't know what that means, 
named Lita Laverne, and she seems very popular on the boat. She's a famous foreign actress, so that'll do it. Clark is walking around, and he bumps into someone, uh, and is called a clumsy lout. And he sees Lita talking to a, an officer in uniform. And for some reason, Clark says, no doubt she prefers the captain to me. Must be his uniform. She doesn't even know you freaking exist, dude. Calm down, Clark. Not every woman is is put on this earth to be interested in you. He's looking around at this moment and sees a man, a shadowy figure with a gun um, who's aimed at Lita. And he throws a, a belaying pin at him and knocks him into the water, presumably to his death. Lita saw this and says that she owes him her owes him her life, and he asks for an interview, which is what he always does when he saves someone's life, and uh, he asks her why anyone would want to shoot her, and she says she doesn't know. Later that night, Clark's just walking around, strolling around the deck, because I guess it's boring on a boat uh, traveling across the ocean, and he sees a light on in the captain's cabin, and inside he sees Lita rifling through the papers with the flashlight, so he thinks something's off with her. They finally land in Turan, which is where apparently they were going. That's where Luxor must be. And Lita says that uh, Clark needs to come to her manor tonight where she's holding a little reception. Uh, Nothing like a wartime reception. Uh, But first, Clark and Lois have to do some work, and they head to the the ministry, the foreign ministry, and they're not allowed in. And apparently there's some some tight censorship going on, uh, and the only thing that the press the war correspondents get is a censored press release. So that's information is tight. Uh, that same day at the, at the ministry, he sees Lita, but she completely ignores him, which makes me really think of the, uh, the ultra human night Dolores winter story, uh, where, where, when he went to her house, she completely snubbed him. And that's what I thought. I thought it was ultra human night again. I was like, but shouldn't he recognize Dolores winters? But it's not, it's not, don't worry. That night, uh, Lois and Clark are dressed all fancy. Clark's wearing uh, a top hat and tails, very fancy. And Lois says, I suppose you'll stick so close to Miss Laverne, I won't catch sight of you all night. Lois, why do you care? You hate Clark. And uh, when Clark gets there, he is greeted warmly by uh, Lita Laverne, and he's confused just like we all are. And she brings him out to the garden, to the secluded garden, to have a chat, and she asks him, what the great nations, so I guess like the real the nations that actually exist, think about the war. Like, are they sympathy with Turan uh, in their invasion of Galonia? And Clark says, no, typically democracies don't like aggressor nations, which is pretty obvious. And, so she, and she says, oh, I got to go. I'm hostess. I should look after my guests. And a little while later, she's, you know, schmoozing with another gentleman who looks to be wearing military regalia. Uh, Clark finds Lois. And she says, so here you are. I don't want any explanations from you. I'm leaving. Why do you care, Lois? Make up your mind. Do you hate Clark or do you want his attention? I I need to know. <sighs> At that moment, a bomber drops bombs near the area, uh, shaking the house, you know, making things fall off the ceiling and stuff. And Clark dives under a table because he's supposed to be a coward. He then becomes Superman and jumps up onto the plane. The plane attempts to shake him off by doing a, you know, a per- perpendicular rise, which is really, I would be difficult for just a random person to hold on to a plane. And then it does a uh, somersault, but Clark is still holding on, and he begins to climb towards the cockpit, uh, and then climbs towards the propeller and just puts his hand in the propeller and just like busts the propeller off, because he's, you know, he's unbreakable. So uh, the plane then lurches and Superman falls off 
uh, lands on the ground, fine, no worries, and the plane swoops down and shoots him with its machine gun. They bounce off. They bounce off, of course, and Superman grabs back onto the plane and climbs back on. He pulls it down by the wheel to the ground and then just like chucks it into a field and it explodes. And Lois, of course, wants to you know talk to Superman because she loves Superman. And he says no autographs today because he has stuff he's got to do. So he follows Lita Laverne. She's used this distraction as a way to slip away from the party to the foreign ministry that no one can get into. And she passes in no problem. And the guard says, you may pass Agent T-21. <gasps> She's a spy. She's a spy for Toran. Superman uh, jumps up on top of the building and overhears her with a military officer. And they are coming up with a plan to torpedo a neutral liner and blame it on whatever that fake country is, not Turan, Galania, Galania, Gloriana, I don't know. Um, Very similar to what happened with the Russo-Finnish war uh, with the Russians bombing their own village. So Superman overhears this, and he overhears the name of the submarine that is going to be used. So he runs out. To the ocean, dives into it, finds the torpedo, or finds the submarine, and as they're firing the torpedo, he grabs the torpedo and uh, slows it down and throws it back at the submarine, making it explode. He then sees that the ship, the Calcutta, is going to hit a hidden sea mine, uh, and he throws a rowboat at it, it explodes. He saves the day and rushes off. He rushes to, finally, the Turanian Council of War. And he reveals that one of the members plotted to, to bomb a neutral vessel in order to, to sway the, the other nations of Europe to their side, which doesn't make any sense, which the other members of the Council of War don't like. And so they say that he'll pay for his underhanded tactics, I guess. Uh, and Clark writes an article about it, gets a big scoop, and that is the end of the issue. So that's... Or that's the end, and that is the end of the story, I should say. And the final panel is a little advertisement for the Spectre, one of J- one of Jerry Siegel's other projects at the time. So yeah, that's the Superman one. Pretty good. Another uh, a lot of war, obviously, because that's what they're dealing with in in this time period. So it makes sense that it would be a, in a lot of the stories. So, but we'll be moving on to a story that has nothing to do with the war. Zatara. Written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Fred B. Gardiner. This story is titled Zatara, the Master Magician, and The Mask, quote-unquote, which is confusing about what they think a mask is and what a plastic surgeon does, but we'll get to that. Zatara's back from England. He's in New York, uh, and he's having dinner at the El Storco Club. And inside, he he sees the tigress. He becomes invisible so that she doesn't see him. And watches over her at the club, slips something into a a businessman's wine. In order to stop the man from drinking the wine, Zatara does a spell to stop him from being able to lift it up. And then he shows the man that something has been put into it. He asks the man, like, why, you know, why would anyone want to kill you? Like, who are you? And he says, I'm Ed Burton. I'm a banker at Mighty Bank of New York, which is quite the name of a bank. So, clearly the Tigress is, is involved in some way in some sort of coup involving Ed Burton and this bank. Zatara and Ed walk out 
of the restaurant. And Zatara, being the master magician and keen-sighted man that he is, sees a, a safe falling from the skies like this is a cartoon. And he uses a spell to gust it away on a, a gust of wind. I don't know where it goes. Hopefully it doesn't hit anybody else. But it's gone and doesn't hit Ed Burton, so that's good. Zatara goes to a science, a licensed chemist, which are apparently things that existed back then, and he has the chemical analyzed. While that's being analyzed, we cut to Tigris, and she is in a Riverside apartment. She talks to um, a man called Mask, or The Mask, that Burton will soon be dead. And just in case that uh, she failed, he arranged for a safe to be dropped on him. So we now know those are the two. That's why the safe was there and, and stuff. I don't know how you arrange that, but he did it. So the plan is that he's going to take over control of Mighty Bank of New York. He'll be president, which is what Ed Burton is. Uh, and the reason for this is that he has a new mask. And it he takes off his cloak that he was wearing over his entire face and body. And he is... He looks just like Ed Burton. And he says, a plastic surgeon made me a face like Burton's. So now, this is the part that's confusing. Because he says that it's a plastic surgeon. But he keeps calling them masks or masks or face masks. And so I'm like, is he getting plastic surgery? Or are these just really, really good, like, full face masks that look like it? And I'm not sure. Because he never takes it off. But it's confusing. Uh, But enough about that. We're back to Zatara, and the drug has been analyzed, and it is for a, a painless, almost instantaneous death. So she was going to kill him. So in order to keep Ed safe, Zatara transports him back to his house and puts up glass walls that only Zatara can walk through around his house. Zatara then heads to the mighty bank of New York, and outside he sees the tigress in, sitting in a car. Zatara becomes invisible and walks into the bank, so that Tigris can't see him, and then turns himself into Ed Burton. He's getting on the elevator, and the elevator boy's like, how'd you get down here so fast again? I I just brought you up a a moment ago. It's like, what? But Burton's back at his house, and I'm Burton. So there must be a third Burton. And he goes up to the office, and um, he's in the hallway, and he hears uh, an assistant to, to Ed Burton talking to Mr. Burton and says that he's going to cash this check. Zatara becomes invisible again and follows the assistant down to the cashier, and, and he's about to check, cash the check, but he turns the check into a snake and then heads back up to Ed Burton's office, becomes uninvisible, is Ed Burton again, and walks in. This fake Ed Burton, the mask, presumably, thinks that Zatara is the real Ed Burton, and he runs because he doesn't want to go to jail. He gets into the car with Tigress, and they speed away back to the mask's apartment. Zatara follows, invisible and flying. And the mask then says something uh, really buckwild, and he says, I can install my electrical phone charger, call up the real Burton, and kill him. So it must be some sort of device that sends an electrical surge through the telephone to the telephone that you're calling and can kill. It's uh, very weird. It's not explained, but I'm assuming that's what it is. But Zatara does a spell on the phone so that he can't lift up the phone. Tigress then scrams out of there because she's like, oh, no, this is this is the work of Zatara. I can't deal with him. Um, he's, he's thwarted me too many times. Zatara then threatens the mask with a note in, written by an invisible person. 
uh, or a, a pen moving on its own and says, get out of town, or I'm going to take your punishment into my own hands. And we know what kind of stuff Zatara can do and will do. Uh, so Zatara heads back to Ed Burton's house. He's like, a job well done. The mask should be, you know, out of town and out of your hair. And here's the check he was going to embezzle. Ed Burton tries to give Zatara the check for a sort of reward. And Zatara says, no, 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 I don't do that sort of thing, which is not true at all. He, he's accepted millions of dollars from the government before for a job well done. But the entire time that this conversation is happening, the mask is sitting out in the bushes watching. So he goes to his plastic surgeon and has him make him a face mask, with quotes, uh, of Zatara. And this is the part where I get confused again about the whole face mask thing. Because he's sitting in a chair, and it looks like this plastic surgeon is doing surgery on his face. So I I think it's just plastic surgery, but I I don't know why they have to call it um, a face mask. So now he looks just like Zatara. And he heads back to his apartment and, and speaks with Tigress. She's, of course, immediately scared because it's Zatara, but... He informs her that it's me, the mask. They drive to Ed Burton's office, and uh, the mask goes in there as Zatara and, and asks to actually have the check that he offered before. And, he, you know, Ed Burton does it, but he's like, I can't. I never thought you'd do such a thing, Zatara. You should have just taken the check when I offered it the first time. And while the fake Zatara's upstairs, the real Zatara is downstairs and meets up with Tigress. She thinks that he is still the mask, and they get in the car, and Satara does some magic, like puts the car on top of the Empire State Building to scare Tigris into revealing the plan that we already know. And uh, then he brings the car down back to the bank and he finds the other fake Zatara and turns his into the spell is something like mask B O Y L E G A R G. Oh. Oh, oh, there's just a weird space. Sorry. It says mask be gargoyle. I was like, who, what is oile garg? But it's gargoyle. So he turns the mask, quote unquote, which is his entire being, I guess, or it is, into a gargoyle. And so everyone, all the people on the street are scared and the police come over and uh, arrest him. And Zatara says, you know, lock him up officer charges of theft and embezzlement which is ours that's not how it works you're not a police officer you can't charge people he zatara then gets the address of the plastic surgeon from the mask and goes over there and makes it so his fingers are unable to do plastic surgery anymore uh he then finally is back at ed burton's office and returns the check for the final time and allows the tigress to go free as long as she leaves the country which you're bad at your job zatara because she is a criminal. Uh, and that is the end of the story. Um, a fine, weird kind of story of Zatara, which we know is, is commonplace. Um, the I wish they wouldn't have called it face masks. I would have just called it like plastic surgery, which is what it is. But uh, nevertheless, that's a classic Zatara story. So let's move on to the next issue. And that issue will be More Fun Comics number 53. Released February 1st, 1940, with a cover date of March 1940. Now, this is kind of a special issue. It's a, it's the second part of the Spectre's origin, which I believe is the first time that we've ever had a two-part origin stretching over two different issues. So we've had, we've had Jay Garrick's origin issue that was just a really long first story, but then it was just one issue. And that's been the same with everybody 
ever. Or, you know, they get an origin later like Superman and Batman. But the Spectre is is a new new type of hero, so he gets a new type of origin story. So we last left Jim Corrigan, the Spectre, having just died by being put in a barrel full of cement uh, and put into a river. He was about to go to, quote-unquote, heaven, but a voice, presumably God, uh, told him that he has work to do still on Earth, and with um, godly powers, he can uh, stop all injustices, root out evil and stop it in its tracks. Um, so Jim is back on Earth, and he now has all these amazing powers. He can walk through walls, be invisible, kill people with a single stare. And uh, we last left him walking through the wall of, of a building on the docks where Gat Benson and his gang are holding Clarice after killing Jim. So that's where exactly where we pick up in uh, More Fun Comics number 53. Uh, we see the inside of the building, and Jim is walking through the wall. Uh, they are about to shoot Clarice. She gets so scared that she faints, and they're about to shoot her, you know, unconscious body. But the guy with the gun sees Jim standing behind Gat Benson and another one of the gang members, and they lock eyes. And in those eyes, he sees death. And the death comes for him, affects him. He passes out and he dies. Uh, Jim becomes invisible, so as not to be seen by Gat Benson and the other gang member. And they're talking to each other and they're like, okay, well, you know, we still got we still got to finish the job of Clarice. I'm sorry that, you know, Jimmy is, nope, can't say Jimmy. I, I'm sorry that Harry is dead, but we still got a job to do. And so the other gang member is about to shoot Clarice that when Jim reappears. And they see him, and they say, wow, it is actually Jim Corrigan. He is alive. So they try to remedy that situation for the second time, and they shoot him a bunch, but the bullets, of course, pass right through. Uh, and he says, a, he says a pretty funny line. He says, if you have any more bullets to waste, go right ahead, because they'll just pass right through him. Uh, so the gang member that was shooting him attempts to you know, wrestle him, fight him, but as soon as he touches... Jim, his skin begins to wrinkle and fade away, crumble away to dust, until all he is is a skeleton, which then collapses dead. Uh, of course, the, the gang member pleads as this is happening, like, please don't don't leave me this way. And Jim says, you've robbed, you've killed, and this is your reward. And this is a very, this is a very typical reaction from the Spectre. The Spectre has no remorse about what he does. He doesn't have any pity for criminals. He does brutal stuff to them because they deserve it uh, in, in his eyes. And, uh, and this is justice because they have caused injustices by their actions. So Gat Benson is trying to escape after he sees his, his final compatriot crumble to bones. And he's trying to get to the door, which has been barred. But Jim stands in his way and he creates duplicates of himself. And these duplicates are getting closer and closer to him, you know, surrounding him. And, but before they can get close enough, he shoots Clarice. In the chest. And Jim, the, the multiple Jims, they they rush Gat Benson, and when they touch him, he falls unconscious. Presumably dead, but we, we don't know right now. Uh, the duplicates go away, and Jim rushes to Clarice uh, and picks her up, and, and he says she's dying, obviously, because she's been shot in the chest by a gun, and that typically tends to kill you. And he says, he kind of looks his head up to the sky and says, she mustn't die, she's too young, she's got everything to live for. And he looks down and, and her wound is healed. And this is part of Jim's 
powers where his his thought processes are what kind of power his powers. If he can think it, he can typically do it, as explained in the in the first part of his origin story. Uh, Clarice wakes up and she is shocked to see Jim because the gang members told her what they did to him, and he he explains it differently that he was knocked out unconscious and threw into the river rather into a barrel of cement and then into the river. Um, she's, she's of course glad that he's not dead, but he thinks like, how can I tell her that she's wrong, that, that she's holding a ghost and not a living, breathing person? Because obviously he can change his insubstantiation, insubstance. He, he can change his physicalness, whether or not he is physical and can be touched or, or things pass through him. So she hugs him. And can hug him, obviously. He calls in the police, and they, they grab the bodies and of the gang members. Jim makes them come back from unconsciousness, but without any, like, souls or anything. They're obviously dead. They've lost their senses. They kind of just stand there mute. And uh, Jim and Clarice drive away. Clarice wants to go back to the engagement party so they can announce their engagement, but Jim says that the engagement is off. And he comes up with, like, excuses. It's like, isn't it obvious why I, I don't want to do this anymore? I simply don't care anymore. Clarice, of course, thinks she's joking because what could have changed in the last hour? Uh, Jim says he's serious. Clarice says that he can't discard their love like an old sock, which they're so easy to throw away. And love is not, says Clarice. Love is hard to throw away, unlike an old sock. And Clark, and Jim complains that she's making it difficult for him. And he's kind of he's kind of quivering, not quivering. He's kind of quibbling about whether or not to actually go through with this decision that he's made. But he breathes, or he like he turns towards the window, and he doesn't make any condensation from his breath. And so, and it comes to him like, I don't breathe. I'm dead. I, I have to go through with this. And so he, he tells Clarice that they're finished, and he drops her off at home. And he's driving away like a bat out of hell. And, and he says, I love Clarice as much as ever, but I'm no longer of this earth. I have no right to marry a human being. There must be a clean break, which I think is very, very valiant of, of Jim. Uh, it sucks for Clarice uh, and for Jim, but he's right. It's, it's like when a vampire marries a, a human being but won't turn them into a vampire. Like, they're going to die, and you're going to go on living, and it's not fair to, to them or to you to have to go through with that, I guess. Uh, Jim then also goes back to his, he, his apartment, um, and he must be, he must have a roommate and he's packing up all of his things and his roommate says, why are you packing? And Jim says, I need a room of my own, a place of my own. And his friend is sad because they've been together for so long. And then Jim is in his new apartment and he's making the costume, the very, the very, you know, the costume that hasn't changed in the, you know, 80 some years that. Uh, the Spectre has been around. Uh, it turns out that in this in this first iteration of the costume in the Spectre, that the costume itself is a white bodysuit, or it seems to be a white bodysuit, and then it's got the the green, almost booty shorts, you know, gloves, boots, uh, and and the hooded cape. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't. He doesn't show him putting it on uh, the bodysuit at least. So it might just be his skin. He might just turn his skin white. But uh, that's the Spectre. We finally see the Spectre in all of his uh, spooky glory. And man, that's such a it's such a stupid costume. But man, if it doesn't look good, you know, for for the Spectre. Uh, and that's more fun comics number fifty three. Uh, I think it's really good. I think the Spectre is going to be a great 
great addition to the old uh, coterie of heroes that we've got. So uh, let's move on. And we'll move on to Detective Comics number 37, released February 6th, 1940, with a cover date of March 1940. Batman and the Crimson Avenger, he's back! He was on a little hiatus, took a little vacay, but now he's back and he's ready to get back down to Crimson Justice, the business of Crimson Justice. Uh, But let's start off with the Batman story, of course, written by Bill Finger and drawn by Bob Kane. This story opens with Batman having been lost on a uh, backcountry road in his black sportster, looking real cool, and he's going to stop at this house, but in the silence of the night, a scream is heard, and he rushes towards the house. He says this thing, I'm probably sticking my head out for trouble, but I'm going to find out why someone in this house is screaming. It's like, yeah, Batman, that's your job. You're a superhero. You stick your neck out and you stick your nose into people's business that uh, they don't want you to. That's your whole thing. So <laughs> he opens the door and inside there is a group of men and they are they have another man tied to a chair and his shirt is open and they have a hot fire poker. They're about to stick it to his chest and they say, that he's been selling information. And if their boss finds out, they'll do much worse, much worse to him. And they want to find out who he sold information to. They're about to they're about to start the torture when Batman says, Don't you think that fellow might catch a cold with his chest exposed like that? And they all turn around and they're like, The Batman. One says he's dynamite, which seems like a compliment, but I guess in this instance it's not. The, the men you know, surround Batman and pull a gun on him, and they think, oh, you're not so smart now, are you? But Batman has a, a counter to this, and it's a kick right in the face. And that, that knocks the gun out of the guy's hand, and he quickly deals with the rest of the gang. He unties the man from the chair and wants to know why he was, uh, he was tied, he was being tortured. But he says, first, I'm going to tie up these other guys. And while Batman's doing that, that guy grabs the gun that's on the ground and pistol whips Batman with the butt of it. And then he shoots the three men dead. But he leaves Batman alive because he's grateful for getting him out of that jam. Uh, and, he, and he says that now Turg, who's apparently their boss, will never know that I've been double-crossing him. Uh, so that's good. Batman wakes up and he figures out that this guy, Joey killed these three men because they knew too much and uh, they had to they had to be killed and so he's figuring so now he needs to figure out who Turg is and what's going on and just like Jay Garrick did in episode six uh, he goes to the phone book and luckily for him there's only three Turgs in the phone books T-U-R-G he checks on the first two and they are respectable citizens you know going about their daily lives But the third owns a grocery store in a not very nice part of town with not very many houses about, which is like grocery stores need to be near where the houses are, at least in this day and age. I don't know. He goes in as Bruce Wayne and uh, asks for a pound of sugar to be nonchalant. And as he's as he's waiting, he sees a man with white hair and a mustache and glasses and Joey uh, walk out of a back room and out the front door. So Bruce knows that he's in the right place and that this grocery store is, is a front for some sort of nefarious business. That night, as the Batman, he goes in, punches the store clerk, and makes his way upstairs. He busts into a meeting 
and surprises all of these gangster men. And he asks Joey how his chest is and then turns off the lights. Then we have a gadget alert. Batman puts on these are actually really cool, like yellow framed goggles with like red lenses and they're night vision goggles. It's really cool. And the the art. So the frames are monochrome and they're only they're only two colors. They're like a like a light blue, like a whitish light blue and black. And it's really, really cool. And so he, he, he does, you know, the things that people do in the dark. They say, oh, I'm over here, and then they quickly move away. And he, he, you know, kind of messes with these gangsters and then says, and now, gentlemen, I must leave you, but we shall meet again soon, I promise you. And after he's gone, the lights are turned back on, and they turn on Joey. They say, hey, why did he know your name? Like, you know, what's up? And they stab him. There's a very, like, a very psycho, like a very Alfred Hitchcock psycho sort of, knife stabbing image they're talking amongst themselves and say that you think the bat he told the batman of our plans to blow up the ship tomorrow night and he says we don't know but so we can't delay we have to get this done after they all leave the the upstairs of the grocery store batman comes out from behind some crates what he said he left did he lie did he lie to the criminals i guess uh but he got some good information and he sees that Joey is is still alive, but he's quickly fading. And he asks Joey who's what the ship is, what's going on. And he says that they're spies. They're uh, going to blow up the, a foreign ship, the Ronage, uh, to make it look like the U.S. did it so that an international crisis will start. And then he, he stole this phone number from Turg, and he gives it to Batman. And he says that he's not a real spy. He just needed the money, and he wants Batman to get them for the, for the good old USA. And, and Batman says, I will. That night, later that night, uh, they're at the pier, and they have rigged a boat, a small boat, small motor boat, with TNT, and they've lashed the wheel so it can only go in one direction, and they're going to basically aim it at this ship as it comes in and blow it up. But the Batman's there to thwart them. But, but again, there's so many buts, they figured the Batman would be here, so they had a man on a second-story building, and he's got a big sack full of sand. No, full of grain. And he drops it on Batman, knocks him out. They they pour the grain out and put Batman into the bag and throw him into the river, a la Jim Corrigan. But, luckily for Batman, he's not in a barrel of cement, and he cuts his way out with his handy-dandy knife and quickly swims back up to the surface, swings onto the pier, beats up a bunch of dudes, and... As this is happening, someone starts the boat and sends it on its way. Batman rushes down the dock and jumps onto the boat, barely making it, quickly unties the wheel, and just in the nick of time, turns it so it doesn't collide with the ship, causing an international incident. It's very cool. It's very, like, you can feel the drama, the the tension in that moment. He then calls information on a payphone and says, "What's whose number is this? The number that he got from Joey. And it turns out it belongs to a Count Grutt, G-R-U-T-T. And he must be the head of this whole thing. So Batman goes to the Grutt residence, beats up a butler with a gun, and shows himself into Count Grutt's den. And Grutt, it turns out, was Elias Turg the whole time. He wore... A phony wig and a phony mustache, and he was he was in charge, double in charge, the entire time. And he's a foreign agent out to ruin the United States. 
Don't you know the United States can do that all on its own? Grut can ruin itself. Uh, so Grut grabs a knife off of the wall and throws it at Batman. And Batman opens a door. It looks like he's just going to... He's just ushering the sword out the room like, oh, here, let me get the door for you, sword, as it flies through. But he opens it, and it the sword sinks into the door, and it goes about halfway through it. So the blade is sticking out the other side. Him and Grut you know, do a little tussle, and Grut falls off balance and lands neck first onto that pointy part of the sword that's sticking to the door, and he dies. And Batman says, it is better that he should die. He might have sent thousands of others to their death on a battlefield if his plans had been successful. You can really tell that that the people writing these, like Bill Finger and Bob Kane and, and people who write comics, have very strong feelings about the war. Uh, that they're not even in yet. Just the war that's occurring in Europe. They, they think it's senseless, uh, even though World War II is probably a pretty good war to fight because of the whole Holocaust thing. So, and then there's a little uh, final panel that's advertising next month, which is the first time I think we've seen that um, uh, advertising the next Batman story, and says that huge, terrifying man monsters are going to be stalking the streets of a once peace- peaceful metropolis. And I don't think it means uh, the city of Metropolis. I think it just means Metropolis in the general sense. So that's cool. Uh, and that is the Batman story. Pretty good. All the all the good stuff that Batman stories of the Golden Age have. So. Uh, yeah, let's move on to the Crimson Avenger. And this Crimson Avenger story was written by Jim G. Chambers and drawn by Harry Lucy, which I can tell that the the art has changed since since it was on hiatus. Uh, the Crimson Avenger looks a little bit different now. His hat is blue for some reason. Uh, but this is just a six-page Crimson Avenger story, very short, and it's also not very exciting or interesting at all. But uh, sometimes them's the breaks when you're making early comics. You know, you only have so many pages, so you gotta, gotta do something with them. So, we see Lee Travis, and he gets a phone call, and it, it, it turns out that Laura Burlingame's been kidnapped. She is a, a the daughter of a, of the millionaire Burlingame. Of course, we all know the millionaire Burlingames, of course. Lee Travis goes to the home of the Burlingames to get some, uh, information for the Globe Leader, since he is the editor, and, you know, a reporter as well. He, he likes to pound the pavement, as they say. Uh, and he basically is there to just give his sympathies and get some info. And then last panel says, girl kidnapped, $50,000 ransom. So this is just really an information setup page. We then cut to um, a bald man uh, with mustache. And it, we are told this is J.N. Worthy. He's a former business associate of Burlingame. And he has received a note. And the note wants him to act as a go-between between the kidnappers and the Burlingames. He heads to the Berlin Games and asks if this is all right with them, and they say yes, of course. It seems the only solution. And after Jay and Worthy leaves, the Crimson Avenger shows up at the Berlin Games and asks them where the handoff is going to take place. And it's going to take place in Central Park by the Perry statue. So this is set in New York. We finally have definitive proof where the Crimson Avenger lives. He gets in his high-powered car, driven by Wing, his sidekick, and they head to Central Park. And they watch Jay and Worthy hand off the box with presumably the money in it to a shadowy figure. Uh, back in the car, Crimson Avenger and Wing follow, carefully as to not be seen following, to a residential area. And they, they pull into the driveway of a palatial residence. So if you don't know what palatial means, it means very fancy and big. 
the Crimson Avenger peeks in through the window and uh, sees that the group of kidnappers have gathered there with the money. And uh, a woman, a female kidnapper, comes out and says that she is not a noise maid. She wants to be done watching the child. And the Crimson Avenger checks and ensures that Laura, Burlingame, is all right, and she is. He then goes to a phone somewhere. I don't know if it's in the house or, or what, but he calls the police and tells them to come to 704 West Highway, Scarchester. Uh, the boss is coming up the driveway, says the gang members. And in walks, you might have guessed it, J.N. Worthy. He was in on it the whole time. And he's going to pay off his, his gang, and they can all get out of there uh, and go their separate ways. But not if the Crimson Avenger has anything to say about it. He's got his gun out. He's got it pointed at them. He holds them there until the police show up. And uh, he, he leaves before the police can do anything with him. Because as we know, he is a criminal in the eyes of the police. Jay and Worthy and his gang get arrested, and Lee Travis at the Globe Leader has Steve do a rewrite and fix the, the headline that was printed out earlier to say, Laura Burlingame returns safely. Jay and Worthy, head of kidnapping. Police have gang in hand. And he says to Steve, he says, and by the way, seems the Crimson Avenger was in on it, but escaped uh, to kind of build the mythos of Crimson Avenger as this, like, dark character who... But that is, that's the Crimson Avenger story. Like I said, six pages, very quick, kind of, I guess, reestablishing the Crimson Avenger into the detective comic since it, he sat out for maybe almost ten issues, seems like. No, that doesn't seem right. Like, at least five issues? At least five issues, I think. He's also, he's going to dip out again in a little while, and then he'll dip back in, and his, his publication is just, is weird. But that is, that is the Crimson Avenger story, and that is Detective Comics number 37. So let's move on. And we're moving on to Adventure Comics number 48. Released February 8th, 1940, with a cover date of March 1940. Now this one has a debut. It's exciting. Get pumped about it, because we are introducing our man, Rex Tyler. He is a man wearing a black unitard with black sleeves and uh, yellow tights underneath and a yellow cape that comes up in sort of a hood, but it's an oversized hood that kind of drapes itself over its head, his head, creating a shadow over his eyes. Uh, it's kind of similar to the Spectre, but the hood, as I've, as far as I've seen, has always been depicted as much bigger and kind of like hanging over and sometimes having eye holes in itself. So... Uh, he, he looks similar to, well, no, he doesn't look anything like the Spectre at all, but he has the hooded cape just like the Spectre. Uh, and he has a little necklace, and on that necklace is an hourglass to uh, keep track of the hour that he has from his his miracle drug, Miraclo. First off, this story was written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Bernard Bailey, the same duo that created the Spectre. So... We'll read the uh, opening blurb like we do with most introduction issues. Introduction. Rex Tyler, a young chemist, discovers Miraclo, a powerful chemical that transforms him from a meek, mild scientist to the underworld's most formidable foe. With Miraclo, he has for one hour the power of chained lightning, speed almost as swift as thought. But unless he performs his deeds of strength and daring, within one hour the effects of Miraclo 
wear off and the hour man becomes his former meek self. Now, I don't think that explains his powers very well. So I will explain them. Basically, Miraclo gives him for one hour enhanced speed, strength, durability, all that kind of stuff that you need to be a hero. And the issue starts off with uh, an ad in the newspaper in the Metropolitan Daily. Uh, and it says, to the oppressed, young man anxious to help the oppressed offers services free to all who need him. Apply box 28 post office dot 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 dot. Uh, then we see two mail carriers delivering a huge bags of mail uh, to this address. And we then see Rex Tyler reading all of the mail. And he says, I'm glad I kept my address a secret if all these people ever came in person, dot, dot, dot. Assuming it would be bad because there's so many of them. He then finds a particular letter that he thinks he is going to deal with. And it says that this woman, Jay Kennedy, is uh, writing that since her husband lost his job, He's been hanging around with a gang, and they're making him a thief. He was a good man to her and her children, but since he's taken up with them, he is becoming a vicious person. She she asks the same, she asks the hour man for help, and uh, the hour man decides to help. He then goes in disguise to Mrs. Kennedy's home and asks her what Mr. Kennedy is going to do next, and she says that he mumbled in his sleep last night about trying to get Miss Van Shelton's pearls at the Bow Arts Ball. So, Rex Tyler then goes back to his laboratory and gets his equipment ready for the mission tonight at the Bow Arts Ball. He gets a tear gas ring, uh, which is filled with tear gas concentrate that he can use on uh, people, and he says it, it could make an army cry, so that's good concentrate. He then also mixes up a batch of Miraclo, which will give him his superpowers. And he says, the grand march of the ball starts at 11, and he'll take it one minute before. So that he has one hour from that point where he thinks that the pearls will be stolen. That night at the Bow Arts Ball, we see Mr. Kennedy and his compatriots talking about the plans. And our man, Rex Tyler has a note delivered to Mr. Kennedy that says, Kennedy, go home to your wife and kids before it's too late. So Kennedy's having a little bit of second thoughts, but his his gang members, you know, kind of say, hey, knock it off. We're going to do this. We have to go through with this. Uh, Then it's 10.59 p.m. and we see Rex Tyler behind the curtains taking his Miraclo. And then for the rest of the issue, we get these sort of recurring time sort of messages that say, like, it'll have a panel, and it'll say 11 p.m., and then another panel will say 11.15. I'll point them out when when they come up. So, the Grand March begins at 11 p.m., and suddenly the lights go out. But, with Miraclo, Rex Tyler, our man, gets extra normal sight so he can see better in the dark than the average person. And he sees the pearls get snatched off of the woman's neck, the woman who was uh, targeted. The thieves jump into their vehicle, their sedan, and uh, run off. But with his enhanced speed, our man is is able to run after them. We see a pair of police officers, and they are getting the call that some pearls have been stolen, and the thieves have been seen in in a sedan driving down, you know, whatever street, and they they rush off. But they come to the same intersection that our man comes to, and they hit him 
and he does like two backflips and lands without a scratch. Uh, and he says, wow, that had almost as much kick as Miraclo. Uh, he runs off following the car, and uh, the policeman gets shot, out by the, shot at by the thieves, and they crash into a deli. Our man follows the crooks to their hideout, and once they get there, he leaps to the roof. Oh, also, it's 11.40 at this point when he does this. Our man then busts into the hideout, and says, good evening, gentlemen. I'll trouble you for those pearls. And one of them tries to pull a gun on our man. He opens up his tear gas ring and tear gases them all. And then he grabs Kennedy and brings him up to the top of the building and says, you know, change your ways. I'm going to teach you that crime doesn't pay. He drops him off the building at 11.55 p.m. Our man then jumps down and grabs Kennedy before he hits the ground, and our man lands like it's nothing because he has Miraclo still in his system. And Kennedy swears that he'll go home, he'll quit doing crime, and uh, please don't throw him off the roof again. Then we see our man and his Miraclo is worn off, and his demeanor changes drastically. It's 12 p.m. He's now afraid of you know being out on the dark streets alone. And he, he thinks he better head home, and he has a stutter because he's now a weak, meek Rex Tyler. Uh, we see him the next morning in his lab at, at the company that he works for, and his boss comes in and tells him that if he wasn't such a timid soul, he could go places. And, and Rex Tyler says, I'll try, sir. And the final two panels, we see Van Shelton. Her pearls have been returned, and Kennedy, he has sworn to his wife that he's on the straight and narrow He was a fool to think the world was against him, and he's going to be a better man. And then, of course, a little advertisement to to follow the sensational, thrill-packed adventures of TikTok Tyler, which is what they refer to Rex Tyler as often, the Hour Man in every issue of this magazine. Uh, So yeah, that's that's the first adventure of Hour Man. Uh, I think it's definitely interesting. Uh, it was it was quite short, only about six pages, six or seven pages. Uh, Obviously, it's it's the first one, so. Uh, they don't know if whether or not it'll be popular or not. But Our Man's an interesting character. Uh, I don't know a lot about him. I haven't read a lot about him. But he, the idea that he takes a drug that lasts for only an hour, uh, but it's this magical drug, is pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, let's let's move on to uh, The Sandman. The Sandman story was uh, written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Ogden Whitney. And it opens up with the Sandman getting a note from Diane Belmont, who we met last issue. And she's inviting him to a party as the Sandman because she feels that her father is in danger. When he gets to the dock later that day, he changes into the Sandman, and Diane explains someone is trying to kill her father. She's worried. Uh, He's been getting death threats from a gang of racketeers. They board the boat and uh, watch as the guests of this party come on board. And we see Dr. Fulton with May Trust, who, who are two of the suspects. And, it says, and one of them says, careful, Belmont may overhear us, dot, 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 dot. Then we see Judge Quick coming with a Mrs. Holt, a society widow. And he says, leave it to me. And she says, you have your orders. And... Sandman agrees to help because obviously he is romantically involved with Diane, as we saw last issue, and that has not changed. And as the boat begins to set off to sail, set off to sea, 
uh, for the party, for the yacht party, Sandman decides to take a walk around the deck. In another part of the ship, uh, a man is talking to uh, DA, District Attorney Belmont, Diane's father, and says that he's going to turn in, and he walks away. And Belmont is left at the railing and is pushed overboard by a mysterious figure. Sandvan is talking to Diane and hears the splash, uh, runs over, jumps in, and, ha- and asks Diane to find a rope to throw to him. He gets D.A. Belmont uh, to the rope, and they climb up. And Sandman, ex- Sandman and Diane explain that D.A. Belmont is to be killed from what they have gathered. Diane and D.A. Belmont, her father, uh, pretend like nothing has happened to the rest of the partygoers as not to raise any suspicions. And the Sandman is watching the shore, I guess. Um, he says that this is as good a spot as any to watch that shore. I don't know why he's watching the shore. It's not mentioned. He sees someone carrying a spade, uh, and he says the action has started. Then he goes to a building. Uh, it's presu- it's We're to assume that it's Diane and uh, her father's house. And the Sandman throws some stones against the window in order to get her attention. She gets dressed, and they go to the shore where... (laughs) This story is so incoherent. It it changes locales, and there's no reasoning for why the characters are doing what they're doing or or where they're at. So it's it's impossible for me to parse it uh, to you, the listener. I'm doing my best. So they go to this place where... Sandman saw someone carrying a spade and they see them digging a hole and the Sandman immediately runs away because he has to check something and he goes back to Diane and her father's house and checks the master bedroom where her father sleeps and smells his drink sitting next to his bed and he can smell that there's poison. He then dashes from the house out the second story window back to where the guy was digging the hole and then he gasses the guy who turns out to be Dr. Fulton from the beginning. Uh, and then inside the hole, they find Diane's father. He has been drugged. They were going to bury him alive, I guess. I don't know why they wouldn't just kill him. I don't. Burying him alive just seems so much more complicated. Sandman searches the na- now knocked out doctor's luggage. And he finds that he had a note uh, that said if, if the doctor doesn't find some clever way to kill Diane's father, that his secret will get out. He then compares the invitation replies to the party with the the note, and he finds uh, a raised E and a, a lowered R. We then see some man. I think it's Diane's father. I don't really know. Um, they all look the same. Like, they're all drawn very similarly, so it's very difficult to parse who's who. Um, he is... It's just a panel that says a strange appearance, and it's a man, like, bracing himself against a door, and I don't know if that's her father... Or if that's somebody else. But Diane says, it was Judge Quick. He's He's gone to turn his gangsters loose. Uh, uh, then Sandman asks about a fast boat. Uh, and Diane says, yes, they have one. And then they use the fast boat to overtake some yacht. Uh, and they gas uh, the people on board. Uh, then they find an invitation on presumably Judge Quick, uh, if that's who this is supposed to be, that it's uh, a letter smells like Mrs. Holt, the society widow, and then they're 
driving the boat to some island uh, that isn't talked about previously. Then they're at a building, and Sandman it climbs up a vine ladder, and inside he sees a woman threatening Diane's father to sign that paper, a vague paper. Uh, Sandman sneaks through the window to gas Mrs. Holt, knocks her out, and Diane's father thanks him profusely, and that's the end. The most incoherent story I think we've ever read. And I mean, like, I, I, I did not, I did not leave anything out. I didn't miss any panels. I didn't do any of that stuff that that might have made it incoherent. It just doesn't make any sense. There is so much left out. Like, we don't know where the yacht is going for the party initially. Is it going to an island? Is everyone staying on the island? Is that what's happening? Is, like, this... Thinking about it a little bit, this is what I think happened. That they left out information because they didn't have enough space. Because comics. The yacht party is going to an island. Part of it is sailing, you know, to the island on the yacht. That's part of the party. And then they're going to stay overnight at the island or something. You know, the, the stuff on the boat happens. And then Sandman watches someone with a spade go off onto the island. Mysteriously. And then... There's also buildings on the island that they're staying in, not staying on the boat. And so that's where the buildings come from. And Judge Quick is trying to escape with the yacht uh, away from the island. And so then, but Sandman stops him and they go back to the island where Diane's father is and all the rest of the guests are. And that makes a little bit more sense, but it's so not explained in any way. Uh, I guess you're just supposed to guess where the yacht party goes. Like, I don't. I don't know what the writers think that their audience does, but I doubt that many 1940s comic book readers who most of the time were like 10-year-old boys were going on many yacht parties that that they would understand that, oh, of course, a yacht party. It leaves from the harbor and it docks in an island and everyone stays on the island. I'm a fancy 10-year-old. But this is the most incoherent uh, Sandman story that I think I've ever read and maybe of any of the ones that we've read on this show. And that's that's putting it right up there with that Crimson Avenger one where half the action takes place off screen and it's not well explained. So, um, yeah, a really not great end to this episode because that's the last issue and that's the last story. Um, but still, we got we got some debuts. We got a Hugo Strange debut, a villain debut, uh, a love interest debut for Sandman, Wesley Dodds, and a hero debut in Rex Tyler, the Hour Man. So I think overall, pretty good, pretty good uh, slate of of issues that we read. Uh, So let's close it out. Reach out on social media uh, with the Twitter and the Instagram. Instagram more active than the Twitter. Issue, issue podcast on Instagram, uh, where I post a lot of primo panels, the fun panels that I find from these comic books, uh, comic book covers of the comics covered (laughs) that week. That during that week's episode, and other just cool stuff that I see in in the comics that we read uh, that week. It, it's it's a good time over there. So so head on over there, give us a follow, give us some likes. You know how it is. Uh, but more importantly, head over to uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you can rate podcasts and give us a rating. Any rating will do. Uh, just just some sort of rating. If you got if you got feedback that you want to give me, if you want critiques, I am always I'm always up for critiques and getting better. 
Uh, so give us a rating and a review, and, and we'll read them out on air. We. It's just me. I'll read them out on air. I, I, I tend to slip into the royal we, like I'm Queen Elizabeth, R.I.P., but yeah, I'll, I'll read them out on air and, you know, give you a little shout out for, for helping out the show or hindering the show. I'll, I'll make you my mortal enemy if you give me a bad review. But yeah, that's, that's the end of the episode this week. Uh, we'll, we'll see you all next week with a new batch of comic books. Uh, so until then, see you later. Mm-hmm.